Well, sometimes I think that the way the church does things confuses people. I love the way that in Anglican worship, we spend so much time on scripture reading and that the focal point is on the gospel reading. Every week we hear a different story from the gospels about Jesus. Usually we have a sermon about one of those stories. And I love and I'm thankful for the Sunday school tradition that I grew up in, where every Sunday there was a different story to learn about. But this approach might be just a little bit misleading because it might seem to us like the Bible is just a collection of pretty cool stories told in random order like Aesop's fables or Mother Goose's tales. And one after another, week by week, just another story gets pulled out of the collection and and told. So it may not be clear that each story is told in the context of other stories because there's a plan to scripture. There's a plan to the stories. There's a plan to their order a plan to which story comes where and follows what and is followed by what story. If you haven't heard me say this before, the key to Bible study is location, location, location. Location and time. When did something happen? That one's usually pretty easy to figure out. The location in culture and place. Knowing something about the legal structure, the economics, the sociology, those kinds of things. Um, And that can take some time to learn. But the simplest is location in Scripture. What comes before and what comes after. Because you see, each of these stories is related to each other. Um, I was listening to a podcast this week, and to be honest, I forget which podcast it was. But the the podcaster said that um, when he went to college, there was a course, Introduction to the Hebrew Bible slash Old Testament. And he said, I'm going to ace that course. I had perfect attendance in Sunday school for the last 18 years. (laughs) I'm going to be just great. And so he signed up for that course. The first day of class, the professor came in with a stack of papers. They used to use those in schools. And um, handed out, and it was a pretest. And he said, I want you to, to answer these questions the best that you can. It doesn't count for your grade, but just, just so you know where, where you stand. And he said, oh, I got, I got this. And the first question was, who came first, Abraham or Moses? And he said, well, that's not fair. I know lots of stories about Abraham. I know lots of stories about Moses. Who cares which one came first? Well, then he found out that's kind of important. And if you didn't know the answer to that question, don't feel bad. Because the point is that was a really smart guy. Or else I wouldn't listen to his podcast. It just never dawned on him to know kind of a basic outline of the story. And John's gospel is no different. Each story plays a significant role in driving the whole gospel forward. forward. John tells us twice that he very carefully selected which events to communicate to us. At one point telling us in the next chapter, chapter 21, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And in our reading today, John tells us why these particular stories were selected. In verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus did many other things, said many other things, but these things, John said, I've picked out because these things will lead you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the chosen one of God, the Christ, God himself in human flesh. And this is even more dramatic when we look at the particular stories that John picks. Scholars who know more than I do tell me that by, by paying close attention to the, to the stories, 
that God, John only tells us the events that happened on 21 days in Jesus' life. Jesus who dies at roughly 33 years of age after three and a half years of ministry and John picks out stories from 21 days. And I have to check my notes. 10 of the 21 chapters cover the last week of Jesus' life, what we call Holy Week today. One third of the verses, 237 of 879, cover one day. Good Friday, of course. That's highly selective. And oftentimes, we only know one thing that happened on that day. And these events aren't necessarily arranged in chronological order. Only a tiny number of incidents involving Jesus and their selection and arrangement are designed to lead us along a pathway to lead us to a belief that Jesus is God's anointed Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and God come to us in human flesh. So with that in mind, let's look at these two events in our gospel reading this morning. Now these two appearances of Jesus to his disciples are not the only time that Jesus appears to his disciples after the resurrection. But these two are chosen by John and placed right here in his gospel. And it isn't obvious to us when these events are kind of removed from the gospel of John and read separately in a church service or in a Sunday school class um, in a way that separates them from the rest of John's gospel. But these two events are the conclusion of the entire gospel of John. It's the wrapping up point. It's the conclusion of the entire gospel. And I like a good conclusion probably because I have a very hard time writing a good conclusion myself. That may well become painfully apparent to you at the end of the (laughs) sermon this morning. But the Gospel of John truly concludes with the last verse in our reading. In fact, our translators chose this heading for the reading, the purpose of this book. What I just read to you a minute ago, now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now there is one more chapter, chapter 21, but that's kind of an epilogue where John kind of wraps up the story and signs off for us. But the climax of the action, the conclusion of the story is with these two linked stories we read today. And the Gospel of John is written and designed to bring us to this point. The Gospel which begins in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word And the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not understand it. That was the true light, which lights every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as received them, him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the introduction to John's gospel. And the reader says, wow, God became a human being. What's that like? And John says, I'm glad you asked. And off we go. First, there's John the Baptist standing out in the desert calling people to repent of of their sins. And one day he sees Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then Jesus begins to call people to follow him. Then there's a wedding, and Jesus turns water into wine. Then he throws swindlers and con artists out of the temple. Then a rabbi named Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and says, We know you're a good teacher. And Jesus says to him, You must be born again. Then he meets a Samaritan woman and says that he can give her living water. Then he heals a bunch of people. 
Then he feeds people miraculously. Then he walks on water. Then he proclaims forgiveness of sins. Then he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. And that's when the plot turns. The leaders of the people realize that he's the Messiah. But he's not the kind of Messiah they want. This is a dangerous Messiah. This guy can raise the dead. If Rome finds out about this guy, they'll crush us. They'll destroy us. So they meet. The leaders meet and they decide it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to die. We've got to kill Jesus or else the Romans are just going to crush us. So they plot to kill him. And Jesus is killed. But God raises Jesus from the dead. And that's what it looks like for God to become a human being. And John sits there at his desk, let's just picture him, staring at the blank piece of paper or parchment or whatever. And he thinks of everything he's written and everything he could say, thinks of everything Jesus said and did, all of his encounters and his conversations and his miracles and everything. And John asks himself, now how do I bring it all together and close up this thing? And he remembers this scene and he smiles and he starts to write and he gives us this concluding scene An understandably frustrated, confused, disoriented, and doubting man looking at the wounds of the risen Christ and saying, my Lord and my God. And John writes to us, you're like Thomas. You need to believe too. Why does John make Thomas the climax of the gospel? The point is not that Thomas is a great doubter, although that's what he gets slammed with. Before, right just before the service, Father Bob pointed out to me that, that uh, uh, Thomas gets slammed every year. The second Sunday of Easter is always this reading. He never gets a break. <laughs> Across the world, Thomas is getting slammed today. But it's not that Thomas is a great doubter. It was that Thomas is a great apostle and a great believer. Notice that Thomas does not need to see the risen Lord to be a believer. No, I mean, that he, I know that he says he needs to see, to believe. But in fact, that's not true. Thomas says, I can't believe until I see the risen Lord and physically am able to, to place my finger in the nail holes and to place my hand into his side. But Jesus rebukes him softly and says, you should have believed the apostles. Thomas so far in the gospel has revealed himself to be a man of courageous faith. When Jesus says that he's going to Jerusalem to die, Thomas says, all right, guys, get up. Let's go with him. Let's go die with him too. When Jesus says that his disciples must follow him to go to the Father, Thomas says, just show us the way and we'll go. Do you understand what Thomas means when he says, show us the Father? To do that, you have to die as far as Thomas knows at that time. Show us, show us the way. We'll go. But now we come to the scene that gives Thomas his nickname, Doubting Thomas. Although Thomas actually doesn't doubt, he flat out does not believe at all. This was a lesson, the first lesson I learned from Father Michael Lacanina, Father Michael the Elder, we have to call him now, um, even before he became Father Michael. I preached on doubting Thomas, and he said, Thomas didn't doubt. He didn't believe at all. Because to doubt means that you're torn between two different beliefs. You believe one thing slightly more than you believe the other thing, but you still kind of believe the other thing and kind of have this kind of divided doubt. 
But Thomas's beliefs are not divided. He's not divided between belief and unbelief. He simply doesn't believe at all. And that's not the same thing. The disciples come to Thomas and say, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He refuses to believe what his friends tell him. He says, I require proof. I've got to see it and feel it. And given the news that he's told, it's hard to blame him for not believing it. Last, um, last week, there was the outbreak on atheist Twitter like there is every year. Here's your annual reminder. People don't rise from the dead. <laughs> and then Christian Twitter jumps on and says, we know that's the point. If people rose from the dead all the time, Easter would not be a big deal. We know. Father Michael touched on, Father Michael the Younger touched on this last week about chronological snobbery. That somehow these people must be foolish and ignorant. Well, we know some things more, like internal combustion engines and that kind of stuff. But I tell you, everybody in the ancient world knew two things. First of all, they knew where babies came from. And you can't have a baby if you didn't have sex. And number two, dead people don't come back to life. Everybody knew that. That's why this news was so big. And Thomas gets the news He says, the news is that the same body we saw hanging on the cross is walking around and showing up. Thomas says, you expect me to believe you guys? He says, I've been hanging out with you guys for three years. When have you guys ever gotten it right before? (laughs) Well, it's hard to blame him. But Jesus kind of does. Jesus gives Thomas what he asks for and then says, but you know, I didn't really need to do that after all. You see because you believe, and I'm glad you believe because you saw, but there are going to be lots of people who believe, who don't see this, who will never see my resurrected body, and those people will be blessed. Peter echoes this in the epistle reading we read today. He's writing to Christians far from the land of Israel, few of whom would have had a chance to have even encountered the risen Christ. And he writes to them, though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you have not seen him, You love him. And even though you do not see him, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. So Thomas is wrong when he says that he must see in order to believe. And kind of the point here is obvious because many people in this room are believers in Christ. And few of us have encountered the resurrected Christ. If anyone has, I haven't heard about it. But we believe Notice Thomas doesn't need to see the risen Lord in order to be a believer. But he does have to see the risen Lord to be something else. And that is an apostle. The definition of an apostle in the New Testament is one who's borne witness to the risen Lord. That's the rule Peter speaks up and mentions in Acts chapter 1. When they're picking a replacement for Judas, they pick Matthias. So he's going to be the new 12th. And and Peter says, okay, for this office we've got to have people who have seen the risen Lord. Thomas was one of the 12 disciples, but he's not yet an apostle. I'll explain the difference in a minute. Jesus appears to the other disciples the first time in our readings, but this is a special post-resurrection appearance, not just any old ordinary post-resurrection appearance. 
This is special because Jesus is going to commission them as apostles. The difference lies in the Greek behind the words. Disciple means a student. Apostle means someone who's being sent out. And in fact, that's the words that Jesus uses. He says, I'm sending you out. The apostles are those who are sent out. And so he appears before them. He says, I'm sending you out. I'm making you apostles. He breathes on them. They receive the Holy Spirit. He gives them the authority to tell people how to have their sins forgiven and to proclaim that they have been forgiven. And Thomas misses this. See what happens when you skip church? Sometimes Jesus shows up. Sometimes the Holy Spirit shows up. Well, Thomas misses this. And you see, if he doesn't see the risen Lord, he can't be an apostle. And again, that's the rules that's laid down in Acts chapter 1. You remember that Paul was constantly fighting about his apostleship, and he would claim, I saw the resurrected Lord on the road to Damascus. That's when I see, he, in fact, he says, as one born out of time, he says, I, I wasn't in the right place at the wrong, right time, but I saw the resurrected Lord. The, James, the brother of Jesus, we're told explicitly, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He thought Jesus was crazy. But Jesus appears to him after his resurrection, and we're told explicitly about John, Jesus' brother, encountering the resurrected Christ, because that's what makes him an apostle. There are some others who are mentioned as apostles here and there in the New Testament, and the assumption is that they were one of the 500 who witnessed the resurrected Savior. And it's more than just this short glance at Jesus that makes them the apostles. They also get 40 days of instruction from the risen Lord before the ascension. They get all the proof they want, and then they're sent out to tell others. Much later in life, John will begin his first epistle with a statement of this experience. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Did you catch all that seeing, touching, walking with? We're telling you this. And that's why Thomas has to see Jesus. Because the apostles see him, heard him, and went out carrying the gospel. And they're changed forever. We see this looking just briefly at the Acts reading in the light of our gospel reading. Notice in the gospel reading, the apostles are sitting locked away for fear of the Jews. It's written that we're Jew in the New Testament. You have to read in, in context to figure out what it's referring to. Sometimes that word Jew is used to refer to anyone of Hebrew ancestry except for the Samaritans, any Jewish person. Sometimes that word Jew refers to people who live in Judea. This is the area around Jerusalem, and the Galileans live way up to the north. Remember when Peter denied Jesus and the, the, the servant girl says, I recognize you by your accent? They, they live so far apart, they have different regional styles. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, um, the Judeans say, we hear these Galileans speaking to us in our own language at the gift of tongues. It took the gift of tongues for Judeans to understand Galileans in their own language. Or sometimes it means the Jewish leaders, the leadership of the Jews. And I think the context indicates that that's the, that's the proper understanding 
that they're in fear of the Jewish leaders because they're Jews. They're not afraid of each other or they wouldn't be locking themselves away in their room, right? So that's not what they're talking about. In our gospel reading, the apostles were locked away for fear of the Jewish leaders. Just a few weeks later, they're standing up to these same leaders, probably at the temple, probably on the southern steps of the temple where there are large baths for for the baptisms that will follow. And Peter gets up in front of everybody and he says, Jesus was the Messiah. You know how dangerous that was? It's only 50 days since Jesus was crucified. Peter gets up and says, Jesus was the Messiah. The same guy who 50 days ago said, I don't know who that guy is. I don't even know him. 50 day, what happened in those 50 days that gives Peter the courage to stand up at the temple in front of everybody and say, Jesus was the Messiah and you killed him. But he's risen from the dead and he concludes that sermon. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. He stands with the other 11 and he says, we're all witnesses. We're standing here and telling you we saw him. There we have it. The witness of the risen Lord fills them with courage. Peter proclaims in front of everybody, Jesus was the Messiah without fear. Thomas himself is going to carry the gospel all the way to India. What gives you the courage to walk all the way to India to proclaim the gospel? That's the witness of the risen Lord. And that's one reason, only one reason, why as an historian, I believe the only reasonable explanation of what happens is that the apostles actually witnessed the risen Lord. Like Father Michael the Younger, I won't go into detail here, but I love to. I don't say this as a preacher, I say this as an historian. I don't see any other way to interpret the evidence. So I love to talk about that, but I'd rather spend our time this morning doing a, following a different line of thought. The apostles have the benefit of having seen, touched, spoken with, eaten with the resident Jesus. And this changes their life. This provides the foundation of their faith. But for one week, Thomas is not an apostle because he hasn't witnessed the risen Jesus. And so Thomas is like us. John says, we apostles, we heard him, we saw him, we touched him, that's why we believe. Well, John asks, how can you, to his original writers, 20 years, 50 years later, to us, 2,000 years later, maybe eventually 3,000, 4,000 years later, how can you believe that we saw the risen Christ because our testimony is true? And this testimony, this witness, is the foundation of the faith. And here's an important point. If Thomas was expected to just pass on the moral teachings of Jesus are to bear witness to show how Jesus had been a good moral example to other people to follow. Well, Thomas is fully equipped to do that. He's been following Jesus around for three years. He can go over to India and say, Jesus taught us to love each other, to be neighborly to each other, and he was a good example. Well, guess what? They, they got people in India saying that too. What's the point in going all the way to India just to say, Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. They can probably figure that out. He's fully qualified to do that. No, he has to be able to carry the message of who Jesus is. And the resurrection demonstrates the truth of who Jesus is. 
And this directly goes against what all of us have run into. Some people say, oh, well, yeah, all that Christian stuff, you know, the, the resurrection and the virgin birth and the crucifixion and raised from the dead and the miracles and all that stuff, that was all stuff that was tacked on to the story later. What's really important is what Jesus had to say about love and justice and peace. That's the important thing. And they have it exactly opposite. I confess, on Monday of this week, I went to YouTube and watched Saturday Night Live, cold open. It wasn't too bad. It opened up with the Last Supper scene, and I was going to say, oh, no. But actually, they treated Jesus with respect. They made fun of Judas. But the narrator voiceover was, um, Jesus went, went, went around doing good and went to Jerusalem, and his message of love and peace outraged the authorities, and they killed him. No, but they, they didn't kill him because they were outraged by his message of love and peace. You don't kill somebody for that. They don't arrest Mr. Rogers and everybody lines up and say, crucify him, crucify him. <laughs> Who would? If you went to Vladimir Putin and said, let me tell you about love and peace, would he be outraged? No, he'd laugh. <laughs> what have you got to tell me about? They have it exactly opposite. The way the world works is that the big deal about Jesus is his teachings. Everything else is just nonsense added on later. But John says just the opposite. Jesus' teaching rests on the foundation of who Jesus is. And this is how we know that this is the truth. Because the church did not spread because of Jesus' teachings. And we know, that we know that because the church spread most rapidly, with many exceptions, but most rapidly, among the poor, especially the slaves among those who are outcasts from society, those who live, today we would say, on the margins of society. With notable exceptions, but Christianity spreads among those people. And these are typically not people who respond to messages to turn the other cheek. Give the man who stole your cloak your shirt, too. Try telling that to a homeless guy. Take the message of Jesus to a homeless guy. A homeless guy says, somebody stole my coat. You say, well, Jesus would tell you to let him have your shirt too. How responsive do you think that message is going to be? You don't get far going to a slave and saying, I got new, good news for you. Turn the other cheek. This message doesn't sell to those people. What sold was seeing communities of people who love each other. See how the Christians love each other? See how they love us? See how they take care of the sick and the widows and the orphans? Well, why is that? And the answer to the church is because Jesus changed everything. And Jesus can change everything for you too. He took all of your suffering, all of your sin, and he died with it. But then he rose from the dead, leaving your suffering and sin in the grave. So now you've got a chance to find a new life. You've got a chance to live beyond your past and to have a life that really means something because of what Jesus did. And once you understand this, once you understand how Jesus took on your suffering and your sin and left it behind in the grave, then you see why all this talk about turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, kind of makes sense. Because we had one who turned the other cheek for us. We have one who went the extra mile for us. 
And that's empowering us to go the extra mile for you. Well, that's the message of Christianity. Now you can live a new life. And now you can start learning about love and justice and peace. Thomas is called to be an apostle, but he's also called to be a believer. And for a week, he experiences the risen Christ like we do. He's one who's challenged to believe their testimony, the witness of the apostles. But then Jesus appears to him, shows him his wounds, and makes him an apostle. But he also gives Thomas the chance to make the greatest confession of faith in Scripture. Thomas looks at the risen Lord and says, My Lord and my God. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus has been explaining who he is. He says that he's sinless, that he and the Father are one, that if you know him, you know the Father. He says that before Abraham was, I am, and they took up stones to kill him. And finally, someone gets it. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. That's, just not, that's not just a statement of theological doctrine, but that's a personal statement. You are my Lord and my God. And John writes that down and says, and I wrote all these things down so that you can say the same thing. Now, how do you find faith to believe in the apostles' message? Or how do you increase your faith in the apostles' message? Well, first, listen to the apostles. They were telling Thomas, we have seen the Lord. In the Greek, it's really, they were keeping on telling him, we have seen the Lord. They didn't just say, we, we, we saw the Lord. And Thomas says, I don't believe it. And they said, oh, you don't believe it, okay. They said, no, we really did see this. This really did happen to us. And the apostles are still telling us we have seen the Lord. There's lots of ways to grow in faith, but I know of no better way than reading the Gospels, reading the witness of the apostles, simply reading them just like any other book. Maybe start with Mark. It's the shortest. None of these Gospels are very long. You can read the Gospel of Matthew in two hours, 12 minutes, and 32 seconds. I know this because that's how long it takes Johnny Cash to read the Gospel of Matthew on YouTube. And Johnny Cash talks slowly. You probably read faster than Johnny Cash talks. Go to YouTube and hunt around until you find it. Play it out in your workshop. And one of your buddies stops by and says, that sounds like Johnny Cash. And you say, yeah, he's reading the Bible. Just read it. Sometimes I tell people to read it and they say, well, I might miss something. Well, you know, you can always read it again. You know, this doesn't stop anybody from watching a movie. You want to watch a movie tonight? No, I might miss something. Want to watch a movie tonight? I might not get something right. Well, then figure it out. And then find a group of believers who respect you when you don't believe and be honest with you about their doubts. I think servants is like that. If not, we need to become that. But I think we're like that. A place where you can bring your questions along. Note the reaction of the apostles to Thomas. They keep telling him, we have seen the Lord. And they don't kick him out. He says, I don't believe it. And they say, come and see. Come and see. You notice that the apostles were good Anglicans. They put on a church service for Thomas. And of course, being good Anglicans, they made sure everything was done the same way it was done the first time. They gathered together the next Sunday evening, probably the same time. 
They made sure everything was the same. How many candles did we have up? Two. Somebody remember, which one did we light first? (laughs) Anything else? Wait, the door was locked, wasn't it? The door was locked. Somebody locked the door. Well, as silly as it sounds, what happens? Jesus shows up and he says, I've come to bring you peace. And he and Thomas step aside for a chat. Notice how the apostles treat Thomas. If you want to find faith or grow your faith, find friends like this. People who won't kick you out of the club. How could they? Just a week before, they'd been in the same club. Remember all the readings we did during Holy Week? Father Michael made this point last week. Um, They didn't believe. They didn't believe either. Thomas says, I'll never believe. Dead people don't come back to life. And his friends say, we know. That's why we didn't believe it at first either. But we've, it's true. This changes everything. Come and see. And really that's why we do the same thing every Sunday. Because every Sunday service is an Easter celebration. Because if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then everything else we do is pointless and empty and worthless. So join us as we continue to proclaim the news that Christ is risen. And come and see. In Jesus' name, amen.